Our sermon text tonight is Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is God's word. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for these amazing truths, and tonight, God, we thank you for this time that you have given us to reflect on your Son, Jesus, and exactly what he endured in order to secure our salvation. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear from your word tonight. We ask that the Spirit who inspired these words to be written would would illuminate our hearts, Lord. Help us to see Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, according to an article I, I read a couple of weeks ago, more Americans now than ever are afraid of the dark. Now, if you're nervous about the, you know, the progressive darkness of the service, we are here to help you. It's going to be okay. But experts believe that this fear has been stoked by the uncertainty of the last few years. See, we tend to be afraid of unknowns, and we have faced a plethora of unknowns recently. Our research shows that fears of the unknown compound other anxieties, and so Fears of the dark and other phobias have increased exponentially. Now, a fear of darkness is something that we tend to outgrow um, at a relatively early age, but I think that's due in large part to the fact that very few of us have experienced true, utter darkness. See, when we're in a dark space, typically we can comfort ourselves with the knowledge that we can just walk over to a wall and, and flip on a light. And we live in a place where the rising and setting of the sun follow normal and predictable patterns. But if darkness comes on suddenly, and there's no way to escape it, it could be terrifying. In 1914, there is a British explorer named Ernest Shackleton who took a ship called the Endurance to Antarctica. His crew's goal was to sail to Antarctica and to cross the continent on foot. They would be the first people to do that. This is back in 1914. That's a big deal now. Can't even imagine what it would have been like then. But they never got there because their ship ended up getting caught in polar ice and it was eventually crushed. So Shackleton's mission went from crossing a continent on foot to nearly surviving. And the amazing thing about this story is that he did. Him and his entire crew, despite being stranded for 497 days. Now, Shackleton and his men faced incredible hardships, starvation, unimaginably cold temperatures. But do you know what they said the worst thing was? 
the darkness. See, in a place like Antarctica, you can go months without seeing daylight. And one of Shackleton's biographers wrote, in all the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun, day after day and week after week. Few unaccustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some men mad. So why all of this talk of darkness? Well, one of the striking features about the crucifixion accounts in Matthew and Luke, and here what I just read in Mark, is that for three hours while Jesus was on the cross, there was utter darkness in the land. And we're told that this happened from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And you know what the sixth hour was? It was noon. So that means that from noon to 3 p.m., there was utter darkness. Now, this was not in Antarctica. This was in the Middle East. And this reality is attested to by sources outside of the Bible as well. This is why the Greek historian Rufinus in the 4th century told Greek and Roman detractors from Christianity to, quote, search your writings and you shall find that in Pilate's time when Christ suffered, the sun was suddenly withdrawn and darkness followed. Right, so given that there are accounts, extra biblical accounts of this darkness, critical scholars try to find naturalistic explanations to explain, of, uh, to explain the events away. Some posit that this was simply a solar eclipse, but that doesn't really work. Right, first of all, a solar eclipse doesn't create absolute darkness for more than a couple of minutes. Sure, there's some time where it gets kind of dark preceding the eclipse and some time afterwards in which the eclipse is dissipating, but that's not utter darkness like what we're talking about here. And second, a solar eclipse doesn't happen at the time of a full moon. And Jesus' death happened during the Passover, which was at the time of the full moon. God may have used means to create this darkness, but nature alone doesn't explain what took place. This was a supernatural event. So the question then becomes, why? Why the darkness? What does the darkness reveal? What was God trying to communicate in the midst of this darkness? Well, tonight, I want us to look at two things that are revealed by the darkness of the cross. First, the darkness of our hearts, and second, the glory of God. So let's begin by looking at the darkness of our hearts. See, the darkness of the cross was predicted long before this event actually took place. The prophet Amos, writing in the 8th century B.C., prophesied of a day when God would make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight, making it like the morning for an only sun. And why was this? Well, this was an act of judgment against our sin. The darkness of the moment was meant to reflect, again, the darkness of our hearts. As Jesus explains in John 3:19. And, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus came to us as the light of the world, but we rejected him, preferring our own darkness. Now, it's possible you're, you're sitting there thinking, you know, I, don't, I don't love darkness. I'm not perfect, but I try to be a good person. My works aren't evil. 
Well, my encouragement to you is to, to look a little deeper. Because I think if you do, you're going to find things that you do not like. One thing that I think is interesting that's come out of pandemic life, at least by some, is a willingness to be honest with the reality of our shortcomings. Uh, there's an article recently in The Guardian with the title, Slobbing Out and Giving Up, Why Are So Many People Going, quote, Goblin Mode? Now, if you've never heard of Goblin Mode, uh, it's, a, it's a trend on platforms like Twitter and TikTok and, and Reddit in which people, quote, embrace and highlight the comforts of depravity. If you, if you hadn't heard of, of Goblin Mode, don't worry. I now know that I am old and uncool because I have to read articles about such things instead of just like having people who know about the whatever. Right. But I think many people began their time in quarantine with ambitions of bettering themselves. Right? They were going to eat healthier, exercise more, learn a language, take up a hobby, be the people that they always intended to be but never seemed to have the time to become. But for many, the opposite happened. Right? Instead of diligently learning a new skill, you, you binge-watched Tiger King. Right? Instead of losing weight, you gained the COVID-19. Goblin mode is a reaction to the pressure that we put on ourselves at the beginning of this whole thing. But it's also a recognition that we are not the people that we often intend to be. But friends, our problem runs way deeper than a failure to reach certain health goals. Our problem isn't simply that we're slobs sometimes. No, again, it runs much, much deeper. Now think for a minute. Are you ever caught off guard by the thoughts that come into your head? Are you ever surprised by your own reactivity to certain situations? Are you ever surprised by your own selfishness? See, our problem since the fall is that our hearts are bent inward. The reformer Martin Luther, in his lectures on the book of Romans, used a Latin phrase to describe our heart's natural disposition. That phrase is incurvatus ense which means curved in on itself. He writes, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. Have you ever felt used? Have you, have you ever been made to feel by someone that you're not valuable in and of yourself, but, you offer, but only insofar as you have something to offer the other person? Ever feel that way? How does that feel? It feels awful. Well, friends, a sad reality is that this is what we do to each other all the time. We place ourselves at the center of the universe and we expect everyone to orbit around us. But as Luther tells us, we don't just do this with other people, we do this with God too. And what does that lead to? It leads to darkness. To turn in on ourselves is the same thing as to turn away from God who is light. As 1 John 1.5 tells us, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But Jesus, instead of allowing us to sit in the darkness alone, plunges into it himself. And I think we've grown accustomed to the story. We've grown so accustomed to it that we sometimes forget the cost. But Jesus' anguished cry from the cross wakes us up. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus took on a darkness far more terrifying than any polar night. And what was that darkness? It was the weight of our sin and God's judgment on it. All of our failures, all of our shortcomings, all of our selfishness, this he took with him to the cross. And Paul explains that on the cross, Jesus actually became sin. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Galatians 3.13, he draws out the severity of what was happening even further, writing, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The language of the curse and the darkness that surrounds it reminds us of the exodus and the plague of darkness that spread over the land of Egypt before the first Passover lamb was slain. And now, before the death of the ultimate Passover lamb, there again is darkness. God's judgment being poured out in what one commentator referred to as a midday night. Jesus suffered the agony of the cross. He plunged into our darkness so that we could be freed from it. He sees us in goblin mode and he offers us a better way. He takes our crooked hearts and he makes them right. But the darkness of the cross doesn't simply reveal the darkness in us. It also demonstrates, thankfully, the glory of God. No degree of darkness, no matter how great, can obscure the glory of God. Jesus is the light of the world. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Even in death, the glory of Jesus shines brightly. And we see that in our passage. In verses 7, or 37 to 39, we read, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Verses 38 and 39 are the climax of Mark's gospel. When Jesus breathed his last, God demonstrated that his work had been accomplished by tearing the curtain of the temple in two. This curtain was about 30 feet high, 60 feet long, and four inches thick. The thing was basically a wall. And what was its significance? Well, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of religious life for God's people. This was the place where animal sacrifices were carried out, where the people's sins were atoned for. And within the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. This is the place where God's presence was manifest in a unique way. And only the high priest of the Jewish people, one day a year, was allowed to enter the Holy of, the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people. And this curtain, which again was more or less a wall, was what separated the Holy of Holies from, from the rest of the temple, signifying the separation that had to be maintained between a holy God and a sinful people. 
But Jesus' sacrifice was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And to show that, God tore the curtain that separated, that separated us from him in two. And notice it was written from top to bottom, just in case we had any confusion about who did it. And what does that mean? That means that our darkness is done away with. No more will our sin be able to separate us from God. Because Jesus put an end to it once and for all, as Colossians 2, 13 to 14 reminds us. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The world's darkness has been dealt with definitively in Jesus. Your darkness has been dealt with definitively in Jesus. And just in case you had any doubts about whether or not you could really be accepted, whether or not God would really love you, the account of Jesus' death closes with an affirmation of faith from one of the most unlikely of sources, a Roman centurion. Centurions were, were officers, but they didn't receive their posts because of status or pedigree. No, they all started off as enlisted men. And they rose through the ranks by being really good at hurting people. They were tough. They were battle-hardened. And they were often cruel men. But seeing Jesus, the way in which he died, the way in which he revealed the glory of God, seeing Jesus and his love and his grace, this hardened centurion is softened. And he declares what became obvious to him. That this man had to be the Son of God. There are only two instances in the entire Gospel of Mark in which that phrase, Son of God, is used. One at the very beginning, Mark 1.1, and then right here. He was the first person to really get it. In the darkness of the cross, the glory of God shone so that even this guy could get it. The curtain has been torn in two. And now everyone, including him, including you, everyone has access. Jesus has dealt with your darkness by plunging himself into it. So will you trust him? I'm going to pray for us. Father, tonight we, we, we recognize the heaviness of that moment. We recognize the, the anguish of the cross. But despite that, Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for what Jesus was willing to endure on our behalf. God, we thank you that he didn't abandon us in our darkness, but instead he, he ran headlong into it so that we could be rescued. So, Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit. Lord, help us to see our need for Jesus. Lord, help us to turn to him. We love you. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Amen.